Well, good morning. Tamara's going to come with me because there are so many words. Oh, you can sit. (laughs) Sorry, you can have a seat. There are so many words of gratitude to express. I'm just going to dive in. Thank you to Jane and Jan and Amy and Laura who pick up the extra load of administration and ministry while we were away. Thank you to Art and Nancy for being present with our Apostles community throughout the summer. Thanks to Bishop Steve and the Diocese of Christ Our Hope for all of their love and care toward our family, the Murphy family, and our family apostles during this summer. I want to thank the Parish Council for navigating all of the important decisions of the summer, and a special thanks especially to our Senior Warden Sean and our Junior Warden Joel for their faithful leadership this summer. And last but certainly not least, Tamara and I thank you all, our parish family, for all of your prayer and your support and your generosity. We really don't have the appropriate words to say thank you. Our gratitude is so great that what we've been doing this summer is asking the Holy Spirit to give our thanks directly to your spirits. For now, I'll rely on the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians says, We thank our God in all our remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we are sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for us to feel this way about you because we hold you in our hearts for you all are partakers of us in grace. Good morning. So glad to be here. When I start looking at your faces, I start crying. So, <laughs> um, A large part of our family narrative for the last decade or so has been about discerning our calling as a family and as individuals and um, about obedience to God's calling no matter the cost, um, which is an easier thing to say than to do. Um, And there have been significant costs for us and for our children. There have also been significant rewards. And nothing has been uh, more rewarding, more generous, than the immediate way that our diocese and you, our church family, rallied around us in this crisis that we experienced. The... Um, There's so many ways that this could have gone well, but I feel like the way that you immediately responded, not only that, but thoroughly responded, your thoughtfulness in in every detail, um, in the cards that you sent, and the meals that you made, and the ways that we knew that you were praying for us, and the scriptures that you would send us on occasion, just kind of at the right time and the right place. Also, nothing more meaningful than those of you who have walked with your families through mental um, illness before. Nothing meant more to us than you sharing your stories with us. Um, In and of itself, that immediacy and that thoroughness was healing for me, for our family. Your generosity is a witness of God's loving kindness to to me, um, and Brian and I are especially grateful for the way that it was a witness to our children, that they could watch the way you responded and, and see the evidence of grace and mercy and love that is is a reflection of God's image in you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, For my children, Natalie uh, sent some specific words that she asked us to read to you this morning, so I'm going to read that now. Dear Apostles family, I'm writing to you from Austin, Texas, where I'm living and going to school this fall. I would not be able to be here without your support and generosity towards me and my family. 
Your beyond generous giving and your continued care for us gave me the support I needed to recover, which is an invaluable gift I will treasure for the rest of my life. Knowing you were praying for me gave me confidence and comfort in the hardest moments of this summer. I need to especially thank the staff and Parish Council of Apostles for going above and beyond to give my parents the ability to care for me 24-7. I'm looking forward to the next time I get to worship with you. Until then, all I can say is thank you, thank you, thank you. And then she says, I love (laughs) y'all. Natalie. In the midst of a hard summer, not just for the Murphys, but for others here, there is always joy. And we had our share of that. We, our son Andrew, who some of you know is a comedian in Austin, Texas, had a banner year for his career and is receiving a lot of recognition and forward movement in that. And it was fun to watch and be a part of. And some of you know and some of you may not know that our daughter Kendra is engaged to Jane's son, Jordan, and will be married sometime in the spring. Kendra's standing in the back because Jordan has slept through my announcement today. <laughs> Hmm. A great conversation to have with my future son-in-law. That he's not yet awake for my first day back from a long leave. Jane, I'll let you handle this one, okay? I'll let let you take care of this one. Okay, Okay, you got this one. Let's pray together. So God, now as we look at your word, would you instill deeply within us And enliven the places in our hearts and minds that are weak or even dead this morning, God. Would you encourage the places in our lives that have not yet fully been turned over to you to be given to you, laid down at your feet? Would you encourage us that you do not despise our humanness, but that you love us deeply and have invited us into a deep call to follow you with abandon would you encourage those of us who are imperfectly daily living for you we ask it in your good and great name amen i had a great conversation with god this summer i'm not sure how long it took or the period of time i can't tell you the timeline it was just kind of a long conversation and the conversation began with me asking a question I asked God, how much will you take from me before you're satisfied? You can kind of hear in my question that it wasn't like necessarily a happy question. God, how much will you take from me before you're satisfied? Silence. Now, God and I have a pretty good conversation life. So I was surprised that he wasn't answering my question. But he wasn't answering my question. Silence. There were no senses or epiphanies or certainly no direct words from God. Then some days or weeks later while driving, God identified with my spirit. And I realized that I was asking the wrong question and that he was not dignifying my question with a response. I did feel a sense of love in that, I want to say. That it was kind. And so I changed my question from how much will you take from me before you're satisfied to how much do you expect me to give before you're happy? 
And I received an immediate and clear answer. Everything. How much do you expect me to give before you're satisfied? And I want you to know that I have a good conversation life with God. So however your theology works with this is fine with me. But I heard God say in a loving, kind voice, well, Brian, everything. Everything. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus seemingly tries to dissuade those who are following him. He consistently turns to his followers and says the hardest things about the cost of being a disciple and his, his friend. Like, he just says these amazingly hard things. And today's Gospel passage in Luke is one of many of these instances. They are all through the gospel. Jesus challenges the crowd who is following along with him with what true discipleship will actually cost. Everything. Everything. In Jewish society, honor of parents was considered virtually the highest obligation, and one's family was usually regarded as the greatest of joys. The health of the family system was paramount to one's measure of reputation and of power and of prosperity. I mean, we, it was way up there. Family really, in a lot of senses, was everything. But in his usual fashion, Jesus leaves absolutely no doubt as to the cost of being his disciple. He goes after the biggest cultural norm of the day, the family. And not only that, but he uses the strongest language he can. It is, the word hate is the strongest word in any language. It is the most shocking. And so Jesus says one must leave his father and mother, her spouse and children, his spouse and children, their spouse and children, brothers and sisters. He must hate them. And as the crowd was rocking back on its heels from this proclamation, I mean, you can almost see it as Luke paints it. Jesus is walking and this big crowd of people is following behind him and he stops and he turns around and he says, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to hate their families. And as the crowd, you can kind of, can you see? And even more, Jesus says, must hate his own life pick up his cross and follow me. We've talked about the cross here a lot. I don't have time to do it justice. But remember, not only is Jesus going after the highest cultural norm for honor and prosperity and power, he is also using the most awful, degrading, frankly gross picture of how to do that, the cross. It's really more shocking, this word hate, because it is in such contrast to Jesus' life and teaching of love. Jesus is a teacher and bringer of love. 
Greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friend. My Father God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, me. And maybe the one that we need the most in our current culture and could be the most shocking to us. Love your enemies. But there it is. Big as life, the word hate. Theologians and pastors and commentators and certainly churchgoers of every maturity level have been trying to soften this word ever since Jesus said it and Luke recorded it. It is factually true that Jesus was not promoting neglect of one's family and life. He is not promoting unforgiveness or slander or abuse or anything that is contrary to his way of love. This is true. But he could have used a myriad of other words here, couldn't he? He has a whole language, a couple actually, three to be exact, Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew at his disposal. There is a lectionary of words that Jesus could have used. It is rightly translated in our Bibles hate. Some translations try to soften it. Bad idea. Believe me, I looked it up. I tried to soften it for you today. It's the word hate. It's the right, it is the right translation. It is the strongest word he could think of. He uses it for this. To say that even the good things of life, like family, must be cast at his feet in an offering by those who will call him Lord. When Jane sent me the lectionary passage this week, I was in the middle of this conversation that I'm talking about with you and wrestling back and forth with the word everything. I mean, everything, God, even my kids... Yeah, everything. Everything. But that was not the end of the conversation between me and God. Faced with this clear answer that I must give everything, including my spouse and children, to God, I asked another question. Not how. I'll get to how. I'm not there yet. Why was my question. Why? Why? Why does it cost so much to be your disciple, your follower? Jesus, don't you call us your friends? This seems so unfair. It seems too costly. Why? And then as your pastor, I asked another question on our behalf. In this day and age, why would anyone come to a king that demands everything or attend a church that preaches this message, God? Why? This bar is too high, I told God. At this point, we were talking, so I laughed even after I said it, right? Like, okay. Why? 
And through caring for our children this summer and meditating on this passage and preparing this sermon, God has begun to ask my question, why? He's begun to ask the question. I believe that in this message, I've said this before, I think a lot of times we hear Jesus' words when he turns around to the crowd as biting. We hear his tone of voice as being very biting and his message being very, you're doing the wrong things. I don't think so. I think this is nothing less than a beautiful invitation by Jesus. He's giving us a gift. First of all, in just very simple terms, he says why. Because you need to consider the cost of following me. It will cost you everything. This is kind, isn't it? Have you ever signed up for something and you didn't get, read all the fine print? And you get halfway in and you're like, how do I get out of this timeshare? Like, well, how in the world do I get out of this timeshare? Like, I mean, please, God. Oh, the auto loan was six years. Wow, I didn't see the... Whew. It's a gift. It's a gift. He's inviting us to the best way to live our lives. That's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to the best way to live our lives. He is relentlessly calling us to himself. I want you to know that that's what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus relentlessly calling those who would be disciples to come and follow him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He is relentless in it. If you're under the age of 35 or much cooler than me, please don't laugh when I say this next thing. I'm aware it makes me sound old and slow. Okay? I've said it. But through my son's comedy this summer, I learned what a hot take is. Have you heard this term, a hot take? Uh, for those of you who are also um, old and slow, I will tell you what it means. A hot take is defined as commentary that is produced quickly in response to a current event, right, to elicit and attract attention. That's what a hot take is. I had to look it up, but that's what it is, okay? Well, don't, I, when we read these scriptures, sometimes we're like, oh, Jesus picked out these really two cool examples, to use, right, when he was calling people to himself. It's not true. He was actually using hot takes. He was using two current events. I'll just explain it. First, Jesus says this, consider the cost of building a tower. It is true that in this region of the world, several years earlier, like just a few years before Jesus' ministry started, a poorly built amphitheater collapsed in on itself while people were enjoying the show. 50,000 people died. This is history. You can look it up. Just a couple years before this message. 50,000 people died because of the failings of an adequate or half-finished work. That's one. It was a hot take. Everybody hearing him would have understood what he meant. Very shortly, this coming week, is the anniversary of 9-11. I'm not trying to be facetious or funny about that in any way, shape, or form. We'll remember that in prayer in just a minute. Jesus saying this about a tower would be akin to a preacher using 9-11 to make the same point. It would have been indelibly imprinted on their hearts. Shocking. 50,000 casualties. And then the second one about... A king going out to encounter another king in ward, 
in war, Herod Antipas had recently lost a war with a neighboring Roman vassal. So the image of a foolhardy and unthoughtful war would have been meaningful to the hearers. There's no reason Herod should have lost to a lesser vassal. It was an embarrassment. And yet, these two images would have elicited this death. But even more so, what Jesus says is, when you do that, it will elicit dishonor. Right? They'll mock you if you don't consider the cost. Why? Why, Jesus, is your message so hard? It is hard because Jesus is confronting us with a better way to live that any other way to live brings death and dishonor to our lives. Those of us who follow Jesus while hanging on to the world, the flesh, and the temptations of the devil and kind of liking Jesus, face a life of certain death and dishonor. That is why our kind King Jesus turns to us and says, consider the cost of following me. It'll cost you everything. And then lastly, a third example. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Without going into a diatribe about how salt was used, here's, what, here's all we need to know. One sentence. Salt was clearly used in the ancient world to fertilize the ground, soften it so things could grow, so that life could spring forth. Again, Jesus isn't just picking things out of the air. He's not just bringing examples out of the air. No. He is warning and challenging and inviting those who would follow him. That if we do not follow him with the vigor of everything in the humility of the cross, we will not be useful to his plans and his actions that make things grow, that bring life, that redeem the dead, that restore the broken, that heal, that soothe. This is a good king giving a kind warning and inviting us into a deep calling. Now there's a word you're going to hear a lot. Inviting us into a deep calling to join him in the work he is doing to make things right on the earth. This speaks to one of the greatest fears and greatest desires of the human heart. I just want to say this about humanity. Whether we know it or not, we all want to know that what we are called to do will be powerful enough to go past our lives to make an impact past us in future generations. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, we can say in eternity. This is a, this, I am telling you that the people that don't know Jesus want this. It is a deep longing of the human heart to be part of something that makes things grow, that brings life. 
So may I go on just a quick rabbit trail and remind you that we are beginning these triads, groups of three people that will meet several times together this fall and have a conversation about calling and vocation using this book, The Stories We Live. I want to tell you a little bit about this book. It is really accessible. The chapters are a few pages long. It is very simple, and it is powerful. It's profound. Don't, don't let simple mean it's not profound. It will spark good conversation. Some you'll really agree with. Some you may not be so sure of. That's why we want to do it together. I know, can I just say, I know what the temptation is when I say stuff like this. Well, good, just give me the book, I'll read the book, I won't join a triad, I'm very busy. Okay, I just preached a sermon about laying everything down, so I'll just go back to the sermon, okay, but that's fine. Can I just say that that's a bad idea? Like, can I really urge you to go out there and sign up for a triad? You might bring the triad with you. Hey, I got three people, we're in, we're going to read the book together, that's great. You might already be in a group of three people. We are so happy to let you just stay in that group and do this book. We're going to have conversation starters and curriculum to give you. You're going to have these great conversations, different people can facilitate it. One of the things I love about triads is there's no leaders, it's a conversation. It's going to be facilitated, we're going to go back and forth, we're going to have a discussion, it's going to be great. We're going to listen and hear and speak, hopefully listen and hear more. Or maybe you're like, I don't have two people, other people, but man, I really want two other people. Well, then just sign up and we'll find you people. We'll do our best to put people who are close to your geographical location so you can meet with them. The other thing I love about triads is they're super flexible. You get with two other people and say, when you all want to meet, for how long and where? It can move around. Maybe you can do two weeks in a row and then have to take two weeks off because of work travel. Come back and do a couple more weeks. Go every other. It's great. And just, just be flexible. We'll be giving more details as we go. But it is our way of saying that those of us who are disciples of God, we have a deep and should have a deep desire in our hearts to live into our callings, to see things go beyond our own lives. And then Jesus ends with a simple and beautiful invitation. He who has ears, let him hear. I don't know what you've been doing this summer, but that brings me to our two minutes of silence this morning. Through our collect today, we prayed. O Lord God, grant your people grace to withstand the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and with pure hearts and minds to follow you. We prayed that together today. I'll just say it again. We all pray together, O oh Lord, grant your people, that's us, grace to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This temptation to hold on to all the other things and kind of like Jesus. That's really what we prayed. And with pure hearts, with undivided hearts, with whole hearts, imperfectly because we're humans. But under your grace, with pure hearts and minds to follow you. Perhaps in our two minutes of silence today, you need to continue a conversation with God like I'm continuing a conversation with God. Maybe you need to search, have him search your heart and reveal the places that you have been hanging on to other things that he is asking you to toss down today in front of him. Perhaps you need God to reveal in his trustworthy goodness the best plans that he has for your life as you lay everything down. Maybe you need a word today from God. Okay, God, I'm willing to step out with everything, but can you give me a little insight into what happens next? You know, when I say that God doesn't despise our humanness, what I mean is he likes those kind of questions. 
Now, don't give him his answer. You'll be disappointed. Just wait. He'll speak. But for now, you bow your head and close your eyes. I'll watch the time. And God, our simple close to this today is please let those of us who have ears to hear, hear. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.